Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of the Brawn Body Health and Fitness Podcast. I'm so excited that you're joining us today. Today I'm joined by Alyssa Sisney, and we're going to be discussing her journey as a professional figure skater. So we're going to start from the very beginning when she first started figure skating, and then we're going to transition throughout her career, and she talks a lot about the injuries and setbacks and obstacles that faced her along the way and how it was mentally a little bit of a challenge for her. And then we kind of dive into what she did about it and how she returned to figure skating because you should always remember that you're not what happens to you in life, but instead you are what or who you choose to become. I really enjoyed talking with Alyssa and I have so much respect for her. She has such an incredible journey and I'm excited to share it all with you today. I hope you enjoy this episode. Alyssa, welcome to the podcast. I'm super excited to work with you today. Thanks for having me. So for people who aren't familiar with, say, the figure skating world and your journey, would you mind filling them in a little bit about who you are and all the incredible things that you've accomplished? I can do that. Um, I am a two-time U.S. national champion in the ladies singles division, a two-time U.S. collegiate champion, and and now currently the U.S. professional open champion. But uh, I spent most of my life figure skating, and I've competed internationally for the for the U.S. team for many, many years, um, up until 2012. Um, and since then, I've been professional skating. So it's uh, it's a lot of skating and a lot of accomplishments um, and a lot of, you know, ups and downs. It's an incredible journey. I'm curious, when did you start skating? Like, was this something you just kind of up and decided one day, like, hey, I'm going to pursue this? Or? I, to be honest, I don't remember starting figure skating. I was only 18 months old and um, my parents are from Wisconsin. They um, used to cross country ski in the wintertime all the time. They moved to Ohio from my dad's job and there's snow, but not enough snow on the ground to go cross country skiing. So my mom wanted a winter activity. Um, and just went to the rink to start ice skating and, you know, met a few friends and my sister and I didn't want to stay with babysitters. So she had to drag us along to the rink. Um, and it, it's just the ice rink was just another playground for us. And we kept at it and we just we really enjoyed that and decided to pick that as our sport. I love that. So would you say you kind of developed a passion for it over time then? Or was it something that you ever kind of felt like forced to do, I'll say? You know what? I never felt forced to do it. Obviously, my parents um, let my sister and I choose what we wanted to do because we were involved in a few activities. But um, I I really enjoyed skating and I, um, I was fairly good at a young age. So in my mind, I was always going to go to the Olympics and it was just um, that was just my skating journey. And I, I guess I never really thought twice about how hard it was to get there. And my parents were great about letting my sister and I continue to skate as long as they could afford um, what we were doing. Yeah, 100%. I I like that. And I like how it seems like your parents were very supportive and they never really pushed you into a certain sport, which I've joked a lot lately about how some parents seem to live vicariously through the athletic success of their children. And I think more often than not, that tends to do more harm than good. I do. I see it everywhere in a lot of sports um, and definitely in figure skating. But I would say that my parents didn't choose figure skating for us. And my um, my my dad was would have been fine if we didn't figure skate because it was too expensive for us. <laughs> but um, my mom was a, an integral part of the reason that I am a skater in, in the fact that she knew it was what my sister and I wanted to do. And she knew that in order to accomplish things in the sport, 
um, that she had to take us to the rink and that we had to work hard, but it was never, um, it was, there was never really a moment where my sister, I have a twin sister, um, neither of us really wanted to quit and she kept pushing us. Um, you know, if we wanted to quit, they would have let us at any time. So it was really our choice from, and I'm, I'm grateful that she pushed me, you know, to continue to work hard each day, but also didn't push me into a sport I didn't enjoy. Yeah, it sounds like a perfect balance between pushing yeah. enough, but not too much. And, you know, you're always looking for that, what I call the Goldilocks zone in yes. life with everything that you do enough to, you know, get better and move in the right direction, but not overdoing it to the point of losing interest or decreasing performance. And it's such a fine line, too, because um, to be good at anything, you have to make sacrifices for something else. And it's hard to have a normal childhood when you're pursuing a goal. Um, and for some people, the goal is not worth the sacrifice. Um, and for other people, the goal is worth the sacrifice. And, and for me, I was more than willing to give up social activities because I wanted to be a skater and I enjoyed the sport so much that it wasn't a sacrifice to me. Right. So would you say even going into, say, like high school and that sort of thing, were you able to keep a decent balance and relatively normal life? Or was it kind of the thing where skating was kind of the priority? Uh, skating was definitely the priority, but my parents had chosen to homeschool my sister and I, uh, having nothing to do with skating. So I didn't have a big social life that I was missing. And so I'm sure in many ways that led to my ability to choose skating over social activities <laughs> because there, there weren't many social activities to choose from right. at that point in my career. So, so skating was the social activity actually, and being able to travel internationally with uh, Team USA skaters and meet kids my age from all over the world who were skating um, was the reward for, you know, missing out on other social activities. 100%. I love it. Now fill me in a little bit because I'm not as familiar with the skating world as someone like you. So you went from skating for fun when you were super young, all the way up to competing internationally and Olympics and all these incredible things. So how did it go from like, what were the tiers and what was the overall progression from starting to skate to representing Team USA? So there's, like every sport, there's, there are different levels of the sport, but um, our national championships is the big, the, you know, the big goal for everybody. And, and each level, um, there's the senior level, the junior level, the novice level, and those three levels go to the national championships. So if you're underneath that, you're more or less skating for fun and hoping to get to those levels. Once you get to the novice and junior level, um, you have to compete at the regional event, which is, there's nine regions in the country, uh, you get to qualify for sectionals. There's three sections in the country. Um, and then if you place in the top four, you get to go to the nationals. So if you've made it to the nationals as a novice or junior, you're sort of on your way to, to maybe making your goals. Um, and so I was, I think, uh, 13 when I made nationals my first time. And I actually placed on the podium. And so I was awarded with uh, international competitions at the junior level. So it was really exciting to start, you know, sort of realizing that my goals were within reach and maybe I really could be somebody in the sport. Um, and I had obviously a lot to learn, but at the same time, those junior events are wonderful for traveling internationally, seeing what, uh, you know, kids around the world are doing and just to, um, to, to have some success at a, a young age, but at a lower level is really, uh, really helps push you to the next level. Yeah, I like that. I like that a lot. And I think you can take that and apply that in almost any situation, like just win something at a local level, and then local becomes, 
countywide or citywide or whatever and then next thing you know you're competing statewide and then statewide becomes nationwide like it's really a spiral and a ripple effect of you start to build momentum kind of like a snowball you start the yeah, rolling and next sure. thing you know you've got this whole big for thing going sure. and, and for for a young athlete for a young skater to look at to watch the olympics and say i would like to be at the olympics someday the goal is unattainable but when you look at the goals step by step in that progress, you know, the next goal is attainable, winning this competition and then testing to the next level and, and qualifying for the sectional event. Like each goal is attainable and suddenly you're at, you know, you're facing your your biggest goals. And it's it's nice that actually figure skating has that progression to, you know, to be able to get from one to the other. And um, it's a, it's a long journey, though, that's for sure. I can imagine. And I'm sure that journey was made easier by the fact that you were training with your sister the whole time. Actually, yes. Um, my twin sister and I, we were really at a, a comparable level our entire careers growing up. So we trained together and we weren't, we didn't train around a lot of other high level skaters, um, but we pushed each other because, you know, my sister was landing this jump. So it wasn't a choice in my mind. I had to be able to land that jump. Um, so we really pushed each other to become better, but it was never in a, uh, a negative competitive way. It almost, we almost felt like we went to competition on the same team against other skaters. I like um, that. Yeah. And until we were at the, um, almost senior level, we competed with each other and then my sister dealt with a few injuries. And so that's when our careers sort of separated, but up until the highest level, I was able to have that training partner every day and also someone to feel like I was was on my side at competition, even if we were competing against each other and we would like, I would win something, she'd win something, I'd beat her, she'd beat me. So one of us was never um, much better than the other. And that's also an attainable, you know, situation where you're pushing each other because we were equal. I was having a uh, talk about this with a coach locally the other day about how I feel like rivalries and individuals who are competing against each other yet kind of on the same team or in a similar sport and a similar trajectory in the same kind of field, I'll say, actually bring out the best in one another. Because when it's 100%. just you pushing yourself, it's a lot more difficult than when you turn your head and someone else is busting their rear end day in and day out to get to that higher level. It kind of motivates you even more. I, I completely agree. And to, to be able to see on a day-to-day -day basis, I mean, many many as high level athletes are intrinsically motivated, but to have that external motivation of seeing what your competitors do every single day pushes you to give more every day. And that is what makes you better over time. And so I I'm so grateful to, you know, to have had that with my sister because we pushed each other and we didn't realize it. We were just having fun together. Yeah. I love that. And that makes the sport more enjoyable for everyone. <laughs> True, especially actually, when you're at yes. a young age your goal is probably not to land a sponsorship or a big money deal or make it a career even. It's probably to just enjoy it, have fun and fall in love with the game, so to speak. Yeah. And, and just in to accomplish the next thing was maybe landing a, the first triple jump or, or doing this, you know, it, it's still, I think when you're young, it is still a game. It's, it's fun. It's, it's a sport. I mean, there's nothing there's results riding on it, but it's not your career. It's not money that you're making. It's just something you do for fun. And if you, you don't make it, you don't make it. So, you know, even though we were pushing each other, it was, it was not, you know, <laughs> nothing was on the line. 
do you think that would be an easy thing for someone to accept of if you don't make it, you don't make it? No, I think it's really hard, actually, because <laughs> we all have goals that we set for ourselves and in whether they're realistic or not is one thing, but to not make a goal that you set for yourself is is disappointing and it's really hard to accept that you know maybe it's not meant to happen or maybe you're just not good enough because we all want to be good enough and we don't want to define ourselves by our failures so I think that um you know not making those goals is definitely but that's part of life too we set goals and we don't make them and then we learn how to reset more goals and work towards those right and I think that when you kind of give it your all at something you put in 100% and you still come up short and you don't achieve what you set out to in some ways I think that it's a redirection I'll say so sometimes the obstacles that get put in your path are actually there for a purpose and they're meant to change your trajectory forward in order to get you to a better place and as you alluded to earlier I know you have dealt with a ton of injuries through your career and they've probably been obstacles that you didn't see coming and challenged you and pushed you and ended up making you fall short in one way or another, whether that be competition or how you wanted to perform at a certain thing or whatever, because you were in pain. And I know that you were able to revive and revitalize your career and kind of push through that injury and come back stronger and better. So what was that whole injury journey like for you? And how did those obstacles that presented themselves become, in a way, your path forward? Um, I was I was fortunate in most of my career not to have any major injuries. So that was it was really nice not to have to deal with that because that's those are huge setbacks on on the road to you know creating getting to your goals. But um, towards the sort of I would say the pinnacle of my career, the second time I had won the U.S. Nationals. Um, was 2011 and I was really skating well I had sort of figured out competition I was winning international competitions I was really feeling like I had I was where I wanted to be and I could make my goal of making the Olympic team which I had failed at twice previously actually so I I felt like I was in the right spot and I was doing all the right things and then uh, things went south and it was a, a bit of a strange situation where I I was injured but the injury wasn't super painful so I'm training and I'm just inconsistent landing my jumps and I don't know what's going on because this whole last year has been great and I thought I had things figured out and I it was enjoying competition more than I ever had before um and then just things went south and I competed at the world championships and it was a complete and utter disaster fell six or seven times in my free program like just not good um, took some time off like to to regroup and figure out like what went wrong and, and I have no idea what to do next because I thought I had things figured out um, and then the injury flared up more and I, I realized that I had torn the labrum in my hip and mm-hmm. there were a bunch of problems being genetic and also like uh, <laughs> the force of the sports <laughs> and so I ended up having hip surgery in June of 2012 um, and then it's it's a big surgery. You're off the ice for four months. They, you know, the whole thing, you can't put weight on your hip for a while. Uh, not a great injury for a skater because it's also my landing hip. So it's really important that I'm putting that force on every day. Uh, so the U S nationals are in January. So 2013, I have this little competition just to get ready for the nationals. Um, things are starting to feel back to normal. I think like I'm going to, you know, compete and do pretty well. I competed and I dislocated my hip that I just had surgery on. 
So back to the doctor, not going to nationals. Um, the whole, like I had done everything correctly with the recovery. The surgeon was one of the best in the country. And so I ended up having another hip surgery after this. So that was pretty devastating because now I'm missing out on an entire year of competing. This is the year leading up to the Olympics. Super important that I'm competing internationally and doing well. And here I am not competing at all, not training, um, off the ice, trying to figure out if my body is even going to work. So I, um, two surgeries, trying to get back, starting competing again, my other hip starts hurting the same way. And uh, I ended up at that point, I had competed one at one local competition to qualify for nationals. Um, and I, after that, I decided to, um, pull out of the event and retire from competition, which was really hard because it was, uh, four or so months before the Olympics. And, you know, knowing that that was my goal and I had no choice but to give up. Um, and it was, I was disappointed in myself. I was disappointed in my body. I was disappointed just in everything because, I thought that, you know, this is my third chance to make the Olympics and I'm going to make it. And everything is, I've done everything I can to make this chance and it's gone without my even being there to try. So that was, that was really the end of my competitive career. I floundered for a bit, was trying to figure out, um, we're fortunate in figure skating that we have a professional sphere we get to perform in shows. There are some professional competitions, which is, you know, not at the level of the Olympics, but it's what, you know, everyone watched in the nineties. So that was my goal was to get back on the ice um, and just to do professional shows because I love the sport and I love skating and, you know, the Olympics and that goal was gone for me, but still to enjoy what I had spent my life doing and, and be able to make a career out of it was something that I wanted. But um, my other hip, gave me grief for three years until I finally had hip surgery on that one. So it was, a, a, it was a long time of like really searching for what I wanted. If I wanted to continue skating or just, you know, go off and figure out what else I wanted to do with my life. Um, but it was a, a long journey of also listening to my body and trying to, to figure out how, where, where it was taking me next, actually, what my body was telling me to do. And um, why I had gotten these injuries and, you know, what I could do better in the rest of my life to <laughs> hopefully things like this won't happen again. So um, I think that was something where, you know, I had all these goals and I was on the right path to make the Olympic team and it was just gone. Um, that journey has been really redefined the second half of my skating career. Right. And I can imagine, as you said, it's very, difficult in the moment to work so hard your entire life and have that goal of going to the Olympics or skating and then come up short due to pain and injury. And I'm sure it's even more frustrating when you get a surgery done, go through a full rehab process, and then try to get back into what you love to do, what you've always done. And then unfortunately, things don't go according to plan. It's, yeah. it's just absolutely devastating and unfortunately I've seen this with some people in the past where you know they tear an ACL and they rehab it they get returned to sport and then they go back and then they either tear the same one or they tear the other one and it's this cycle that I think is not talked about enough in sports and athletes because 
athletes have psychological considerations just like everyone right even though we yeah. kind of put you almost on a pedestal because i could never do the things that you do on <laughs> skates i can't i can't go backwards i can't jump and land on one like i don't know how y'all do what you do <laughs> but i just can't imagine to you know have been in your shoes at that point because not only is it trying on your body physically but i'm sure mentally it's just very difficult I think for sure the mental part, the mental and emotional part is the hardest because it's like your body has betrayed you. And as athletes, we're, we're mentally strong because, I mean, we're forced to be mentally strong, but we, we think that we can overcome anything with just like with hard work and with those, that mental toughness. And, and so to have to, to fail, not because you didn't try hard enough or you weren't good enough, or you just, you gave everything you got, but it didn't happen, but to, to, to fail because your body failed you is um, I think was one of the hardest parts and into, you know, there was nothing I could do, but I felt like it was my fault and it was my body's fault. And um, you know, I know that's life, but as an athlete, that's, it's not what you plan for. It's never what anyone plans for. And you think that you can just work harder to get back from the injury. And it's just, it's not always physically possible. Our bodies aren't meant to do that, but you know what? Our bodies aren't always meant to do what we make them do for competition. And I think that's part of the sport is we don't, as athletes, we don't listen to our bodies. Often we just push them as hard as we can because we think that's what we have to do to accomplish our goals. Right. And I mean, you saying that makes me think back to one of the first things I remember from physical therapy school. Now, I'll admit I was not a 4-0 student. But when we had our cadaver anatomy course and we were learning about the hip, we were talking, um, there was a dancer or two in our class and they started talking about splits. And in order to do the like straddle split, pancake split, whatever they call it, that a lot of them can do, you actually have to cause some tearing in, I believe it was the iliofemoral ligament in the hip. One of the ligaments in the hip, you actually need to cause small tears to occur in that in order to even do that split. So it's like the body's not meant to do it and yet people are doing it. Um, yeah. And I mean, one that speaks to your ability as an athlete to work through pain, because I'm sure you've had a lot of it, but two, it also speaks to the resilience of the body. Like you're saying, it is incredible what you're able to push it through. And I'm sure at that time when you were suff uh, suffering from those injuries, you probably had nutrition, sleep, training, everything was dialed in because you were eyes locked on, you know, the prize of the Olympics, which is an incredible honor. Um, but just goes to show that you can have everything figured out. You can have everything dialed in and sometimes bad things still happen. Yeah. And that's, that's something that people don't want to talk about because we don't want to believe that it's not possible if we don't just try hard enough. I think that was too many double negatives in that <laughs> sentence. Um, but I think, you know, we want to believe that it's all in how hard we work. Um, but there is, there's luck and there's opportunity and there's physical ability. There's a lot of other things involved. We just, as a culture, we don't like to talk about that. Um, and so it does make it hard for athletes that get injured because they think it's, it's a problem with them internally somewhere they've failed because they're just not good enough. And um, that's not true. You right. know, what you we're asking our bodies to do is pretty, you know, inhuman. You mentioning that, you know, the thought of, oh, well, I just need to work harder. I've heard that time and time again. There was someone who I've actually treated as a patient who this individual came in and was out of shape, out of shape, hypothetically for soccer. 
and was told they just need to run more. Well, running more led <laughs> to injury because there's actually mm -hmm. other things that contribute mm -hmm. to deconditioning. Earlier, we talked about that Goldilocks rule that we like, and that's true for anything. I don't care if you're talking about the prescription medication you take, the exercise you do, or the training you do uh, for a specific sport. There's a point where if you do enough of it, you get the maximum benefit. If you don't do enough, you get no result. And if you do too much, you start to get unintended side effects or consequences. And I think that, as you said, we've been caught in this whole disillusion of more is better, when in reality, sometimes less is more. Yeah. And it's, I think it's part of that, of, you know, the American dream culture where you work hard and you make it and it's up to you. Um, and so we do think working harder is better. And the more we work, the better we are. And I think it even, you know, culturally is the harder you work, the better person you are. And so none of us want to get in that, oh, I didn't try enough or I didn't do enough. So we, you know, as elite athletes, we want to do everything we possibly can. And, and that's just, that keeps, we keep pushing and pushing and pushing because that's what we're told is what is the right thing to do. And rest and recovery and listening to your body are not promoted. Um, I think more so there's more way more recognition now about that, but also as humans, we're pursuing more and more. And so there's, we're pushing our bodies more and more. And so there's really way less uh, listening to the body happening. A hundred percent. And one of my other favorite things is when coaches train uh, male athletes the same way as female athletes, because unfortunately there's a lot of unique differences between gender, including yes. hormonal influences. And it seems like that's just too taboo to talk about. And unfortunately that leads to uh, either poor results or injury or any of these other detrimental things occurring because people are not willing to talk about it or address the elephant in the room and we just kind of do things how we always did things and figure skating I mean figure skating is definitely a sport differentiated by gender mm -hmm. um, because women are built differently than men and little girls are dif built differently than women and <laughs> Um, it's easier to rotate faster when you're smaller and younger. Um, and so as we, it's like gymnastics actually in a lot of ways. Once once women hit puberty, the sport becomes a lot tougher on our bodies because it's not really, you know, maybe it's not built for the way women's bodies are. So I think it's always a fight in that respect, both to um, stay at the right fighting weight of competitive you know elite competitive figure skating to be able to rotate triples and now quads for women um, with all that forced landing rotating and then landing and it's easier because men are built narrower with a lower center of gravity and their bodies are stronger and able to take that force so I think that I mean the injuries in sport is throughout everybody gets injured but I think for, for women and girls, it's harder because of that force and, and our bodies are not built the same way for it. And I would imagine individual skating style plays a huge role in that. And I will admit, I haven't watched all of your old skating videos. However, it seems like you are pretty well known for your ability to spin. And I don't know a whole lot about skating, but I've worked with someone in the past who was a ice skater, figure skater. And I showed her one of the videos and she goes, well, she spins clockwise. I go, is that different? <laughs> like, well, most people go the other way, which again, 
I don't know enough that kind of blew my mind, but it seems like that individual style and the way that you approach things would likely have an influence on it as well. Uh, for sure. And in like most sports, figure skating is one-sided. Mm -hmm. So I rotate clockwise and most people rotate counterclockwise. I land on my left leg for all of my jumps. I, the force of my body is always going to the right clockwise. Um, and so everything I do, you know, 700 triples a week or whatever like all these spins everything is going one way i'm always landing on the left leg um the takeoffs of the jump are different but the force of landing um and the force of rotating are always one direction so that definitely is not how our bodies were made um or at least i doubt that they were made to handle <laughs> that much one-sidedness um and so i think that definitely contributes to injury and our sport is just not one that we i mean Dancers do it as well, but dancers do rotate both directions way more than figure skaters rotate both directions. Ultimately, the body's going to adapt to whatever stresses you imply on it. So great example is Japanese baseball pitchers. So the Japanese historically, from what the research that I've read suggests anyways, uh, will start baseball pitchers very early on at high pitch counts. And that pitching motion of a lot of shoulder external rotation actually changes the morphology of the shoulder. And that allows wow. them to get their arm back further than say the average person such as myself. So typically that would lead to better pitching. But my question is, okay, that leads to better performance in sport. What does that mean <laughs> for the rest of their life? Because unfortunately yes. there is a life outside of the sporting world. And kind of like we mentioned before with the psychological piece, athletes they also have a life they have a family they might have kids and that kind of stuff matters to them just as much as their ability to perform on the field or on the rank or whatever it's you you're right and it's hard in because especially because we start sports so young so we are involved in this sport so fully from such a young age that we define ourselves by the sport and um accomplishing things in sports can change your life I and mean, the opportunities that I've gotten from figure skating and from my results in figure skating, I wouldn't trade that for the world. But when I was in the throes of competitive figure skating, I also didn't care about what I was doing to my body because I wanted those results. So you really aren't thinking about the future. You're not thinking about when you're 72 years old and you want to go for a run or you want to feel good in your body. I mean, I'm 35 and things don't feel great in my body, <laughs> but you're not thinking about that when you're competing because you feel invincible and the, you know, those results are, you know, that they can change your life if you are as successful as you dream about becoming. So there is that trade-off and we think that we analyze that trade-off with a clear, you know, non-subjective mind, but it's really not the case. I mean, we don't know what we're doing to our bodies. I wish we had that superpower of looking inside and knowing, well, if I keep doing this, then I'm going to hurt it. So I should, you know, make sure that I prevent this, but we don't, and we don't even think about those things until they occur. And then we hopefully learn from them and, you know, make sure that things like that aren't going to happen again. Some things, you know, are acute injuries that are just accidents, but those overuse injuries are what, what we should have known better, but we didn't think about as they say, hindsight's always twenty twenty. <laughs> and as you said, in the moment, you felt invisible. And then, as we mentioned earlier, injuries happened. And unfortunately, you had to step away. But if anyone's Googled you by now, they would know that there's 
results of you skating in 2019 and in 2021 and you were the u.s professional grand open champion just last year in 2021 so naturally you're still skating so how did you get back to skating from you know the whole point of injury to where we are now so i would say i mean this journey was one of the longest because i had two hip surgeries 2013 and 2012 um and then in 2014 no 2000 the end of 2013 my other hip started hurting um the non-landing leg hip and i knew that i had like done the same thing um, but I didn't want to go back to the doctor because I thought if I went back, he would say, yes, this is the end of your career. You're not allowed to skate anymore. And I really wanted to skate in whatever professional capacity I could. So I sort of floundered for three years, just trying to skate. Uh, and it was not good. And I didn't feel good about myself. I couldn't move well. Things hurt all the time. It was not a great place to be. Um, and so there was one point in like, end of 2015, early 2016, where I said to myself, like, I'm going to give it everything I have to try to recover uh, and feel better, or I give up skating. Like, this is going to be the end. And um, I, I got to a place where I felt pretty good. And my right hip just was like, you've got to do something about this because it's not working. So I did go back to the doctor. I ended up having hip surgery on my other hip. Um, and I slowly started to feel better in 2017. Um the, and then I started doing shows again, but it was still was not at the capacity where I wanted to continue it because I didn't feel good about myself on the ice. I didn't feel good on the ice, even though I wanted to be on the ice. So um, at the end of 2018, I think it was the end of 2018, I um, was up in Toronto with my boyfriend and he works out at this gym. And uh, the guy who owned the gym happens to be Brad Thorpe, who created Isofit. So he had just created this Isofit thing. We didn't know what it was, but he was like, oh, I'm doing this challenge where you do it for 10 days. And I don't know. So, so my boyfriend did it and I watched it and he was like, wow, this is really good. So I went back home to Detroit and I was like, I'm just going to try this isometric thing because growing up as a figure skater, I've tried everything, Pilates, yoga, strength training, whatever. And after my injuries, things were so off that I, every time I went to the gym, I'd have to take three or four days off from training in any capacity because my body didn't, it wasn't like sore from training. It was just sore as in it didn't work right. Things were in the wrong spot. I felt worse. I didn't want to move for four days. So something was wrong. Um, and I, I kind of stopped going to the gym because I couldn't handle feeling that awful afterwards. But then I'll just try this isometric thing, see what happens because it's you know, <laughs> worth a shot in the dark. So I went home and I just used tables and chairs and walls or whatnot to, to do these isometrics. And um, it was just 30 minutes. You hold these exercises for 45 seconds each. Super basic and super like manageable. I started doing it and I started realizing like my body, I had started compensating so much. I had, I have like scoliosis in my spine. My hips were off. My glutes weren't firing whatsoever in any capacity. Like things were really bad and I didn't know it. And you know, after you have a hip surgery, you work with a physical therapist for six weeks and maybe eight weeks if you're lucky, and then you're on your own. Um, and that's not a great way to leave <laughs> things because, you know, everything feels off and it's not just my hip at that point because I'd been trying to skate for four years. So um, long story short, I started doing this isofit thing. I was like, I feel better. I actually, I'm starting to feel like my body working again. Some muscles are firing where I didn't even know they hadn't been working. Um, and I started 2019, I started feeling 
like the best version of myself since the surgeries. Not like that again, but I felt good. Um, end of 2019, I'm back um, doing Stars on Ice holiday show. And I hadn't done Stars on Ice since, you know, the epitome of my career. So it was a huge thing to get back there. And I was super excited because I was starting to feel good on the ice. I was starting to be able to rotate triple jumps again, which I hadn't done for years. Um, and so this literally doing isometric exercises changed my life because it t- turned my brain onto my body to know how to rewire and how to work things. Um, and now I'm back in a capacity where I'm, my career is performing and I'm so happy to feel good on the ice. And I'm so happy like that I can do what I love for a living. I love that. And there's a lot to unpack about everything. That you've shared. <laughs> um, first, I mean, what was your thought when you first saw the ISOFIT device? Because I looked at it and I was like, well, this is not necessarily the most aesthetically pleasing <laughs> I've ever seen. Sorry, Brad. Um, but I was like, it, it does seem to work. Like, it's very effective. I was just kind of like, this is not what I initially pictured when yeah. I thought, like gym equipment I'll say it looks a little bit like a Pilates reformer I think yeah um with and I had done Pilates in my life but I I mean I did it with like the wall and a chair in my apartment so it wasn't even the machine that I was on that you know that Brad has created I was just taking exercises doing what he had you know created or taking my own exercises and then doing them isometrically and I had not felt so good working out. My body had not felt that good moving. And so that was to me, the biggest change is like, I'm an athlete. I work out all the time and nothing was working. And to be able to do something that seems so simple. Also, you can roll out of bed and convince yourself that you could do 10 minutes of (laughs) this isofit isometrics. And then like by the time 10 minutes would roll by, I'd feel better. So I also was motivated to work out because I could feel I felt physically different, but I also knew that it was easy. It wasn't like I went to the gym for an hour and a half to do really hard workouts. So um, that part of it was also strangely attainable. But I often did um, isometric exercises, and then I would go to the rink from there. So I would turn on all the muscles that I knew I needed in skating. And then I'd get to the rink, and I would be better because my brain had turned on those muscles or the the connection had turned on. Right, right. And I think that's a big missing piece for a lot of people is, you know, in a sense, no movement was the best movement for you. And Mm -hmm. really for a lot of people, poor movement patterns can exist anywhere, but poor motion can only exist in the brain. That's loosely uh, quoted off a great cook. Hmm. Basically you, you see the way people move. Like there's someone I'm working with right now and by default, this person's body always goes into this same position of dynamic knee valgus. And I get concerned when I see that, but they have the ability to correct that movement with cueing and exercise and setup and that sort of thing. So neurologically, something has triggered where in people's bodies, they move a certain way, but you can change that at any time. It's just a matter of kind of rewiring that circuit from the brain to the muscles to change that motion and sometimes it's very easy and in some cases someone who's skated since they were 18 months old it's probably pretty hard to change the way that you skate because you've always done it that way yeah well that is true and I think when I was younger and competing I mean obviously I was aware of my body but I don't remember being so aware of how 
muscles were firing. I just did what I did because I did it every single day. I took a week off of skating. I couldn't remember how to skate, or at least I convinced myself that I couldn't remember how to skate. Now I took like four months off with COVID and I was fine. Like, so you, you get things in your head, but I didn't really think about skating. I just did it from the feel. Now that I had to, like, I think what happened with my hips was that the glutes stopped working to try to protect the sockets and things from tearing and all that nasty stuff that was happening in there. And um, so I had to turn my brain on to turn my glutes on to actually fire them again. And then when I got on the ice, I thought like, I wish I would have known this when I was in my career, in my competitive career, because it would have changed. I think it would have changed how I trained. And I think it would have changed how I approached the sport because I did things by feeling and by repetition and I did but if I were aware of how my body worked I feel like I could have trained so much smarter and also you become more confident because you know how your body works instead of hoping your body will work how you think it should feel right right I like that and that confidence piece is key for a lot of people from a psychological standpoint (laughs) going back to what we talked about earlier when you're Look when you're out in the middle of the ice and, and there's, you know, 1500 people watching you and you're by yourself out there, like you want some confidence in what you're about to do. I want to apologize to you for the six to eight weeks of physical therapy. And that was it because <laughs> unfortunately, physical therapy is a profession that it, it's true with every profession. And I'll speak about it since I'm a physical therapist myself. Um, I feel like there are some great PTs out there and there are some that will advocate for their patient and push themselves and push the patient to get what they need out of it. And that might be, you know, going and dealing with emails and updating exercises with you through email or phone call or whatever, Mm -hmm. and not getting reimbursed for it because that's what's best for you. And there's others that only care about the payment that they get for treatment and they could really care less about the outcome. And it's unfortunate that we live in a world like that. And again, that's not a unique problem to physical therapy. It's true in a lot of senses. I've met doctors who are willing to do a surgery on anyone who wants one, whether they need to or not. Um, (laughs) But ultimately, we need to do a better job in the healthcare profession in serving our athletes in serving the active population, because time and time again, I treat an athlete who tells me, yeah, you know, I went to physical therapy at this other place and I was doing the same exercises as the 80 or 90 year old next to me. I'm surprised I didn't get better or, you know, yeah, I went to physical therapy and they put heat on my hip and they did some e-stim and then we did some stretching and then ended with ice. And it's like, well, no wonder why you didn't improve, (laughs) didn't actually do anything to improve the root cause of the problem. And that's just a common theme I keep seeing come up with athletes. And at least from my standpoint and me on my soapbox, I'm getting sick and tired of athletes who are being mistreated or mishandled in their medical care or physical therapy, rehab or whatever, uh, for whatever reason it is. And ultimately, I don't see any excuse to not deliver 100 percent quality care with every patient in front of you, individualized to that person and individualized to their sport demands. Yeah. And I think, well, I mean, just, it's just the way that our healthcare system is set up is that the physical therapy is there from recovery from a surgery or an injury. And often it's what happens before that injury that needs to be addressed, but that's just not like how the healthcare system is set up. So 
you know, or it's not set up for athletes. Like it's set up to recover you to be a normal person. But as athletes, we're so sensitive to, to the connection the you know, the full body connection of everything and not just my left hip or my right hip, you know, it's, it's how I move and how I got to this place where I had to have two hip surgeries. And, um, you know, it, it, I had great physical therapists, but eight weeks is up and your insurance stops covering it. And, and what can you do, but you think you're okay. And you just, it's a shot in the dark from there. If you don't have someone around you to help you. Right. Right. And again, uh, that, that gets into a whole nother rabbit hole with <laughs> the American healthcare system and everything. And, um, for people who want to hear more about that, I highly recommend re, uh, going back and listening to a recent episode with Dr. Calvin son, because he talks a lot about that as someone who is a doctor in, I believe, six or seven different emergency rooms during the COVID outbreak in New York City. Oh. So he has some pretty strong opinions about it himself. Um, so if you want more on that, highly recommend you go back and check that out. Alyssa, for um, people who are listening, do you have any kind of closing thoughts or closing remarks or anything that you want to end on here? I think something I've learned throughout my journey of figure skating and being injured and in the years that it took me to come back to any form of having a career in the sport that I love is that you have to listen to yourself and you have to listen to your body. And I know that's a cliche and I know everybody says that, but you know what? I, I did ISOFIT and ISOFIT worked for me, but everybody has a different journey to go through, but you have to believe in yourself. And you have to know that you somewhere inside of you, you have to trust that you have the answers and you it's a journey, you know, you're never going to find the one right answer. But I do remember in this journey, I love figure skating so much. And I wasn't willing to give up on myself. When so many people were just like, well, you had three hip surgeries, like you just can't skate anymore. I'm sorry that that's the reality. But like, it's okay that you're not good enough. And I didn't want that to be my excuse. I wanted to be a performer in figure skating and I wanted to have this as my career so I wasn't willing to believe other people when they said that I wasn't going to be back to to being good enough to perform again and so I kept you know doing I kept trying different things and I kept looking for different methods and you know it was a lot of google searching and tr asking other people what they did and just just a, a long journey of discovery but also learning to listen to my body and, and when I'm tired and I think I should work harder because that's what I'm supposed to do. Maybe that's not always the right thing to do. So I wish that um, we were all maybe a little more vocal about how we each are different and what works for me doesn't work for you. And what works for someone else doesn't work for me, but we can all learn from each other on our journeys. And um, you know, it's not going to come at one time, but there, that journey will get you to where you want to be if you can believe in that or, or wherever it takes, you, you know, like we talked about those, those turns in our failing at something leads you to some, something else. And, and you have to, you know, also be willing to follow that road. Yeah. hundred percent. And I love how you mentioned it is a individual journey. And 100%. I think too often people compare their own journey to someone else's and they think, well, this yes. person did this and I didn't, <laughs> or, you know, say you, say you start a business or something and you're like, well, I'm 35 years old and I haven't made it yet. You know, I'm only making this amount of money and we yeah. attach everything to a number. Like just because someone else might've gotten there quicker doesn't mean you're never going to get there. 
And just because, yes. as we alluded to earlier, uh, just because the door that you thought was going to open for you stayed closed doesn't mean that all hope is lost. And you, I think you also, we have to be so honest with ourselves deep inside and say, what do we really want? You know, maybe like for, I wanted to go to the Olympics. That was my goal. Like that's the goal of any athlete. And I didn't, it didn't qualify. And then the last time I tried, I wasn't able to try to qualify. And then, you know, of course I want to go to the Olympics and make that goal, but, but why, what did I really want? I love this sport and the Olympics doesn't change that. Whether I went to it or not, I can still have a career in the sport, which is something that's amazing about figure skating. I didn't go to the Olympics and I have a career in figure skating. And what I really wanted to do was skate and perform. And, and when I realized that like those injuries and in, in failing to make the Olympics didn't change what I really, truly wanted, I still get to do what I really, truly wanted without having to do what I'm supposed to do or what other people think is the epitome of success. And so I think we also have to be honest with like, what are, what are our goals, our real, true, honest goals for ourselves? And what are we doing because we think we should or what other people want us to do? Right, right. hundred percent. Cannot agree more. I'm so glad that we were able to put this podcast together and share your journey because I'm super impressed with you as a person and everything that you've accomplished. For people who want to find out more about you or kind of stay up to date with your journey, is there a place that they can find you at or follow you or anything like that? I'll be honest, I don't use social media much. <laughs> So I don't know, maybe I'll be at a figure skating show nearby somewhere. I'm just kidding. No, you I, don't I actually that, don't. You don't have that MySpace account rolling around still? <laughs> well, I do have an Instagram, but I, you know, post occasionally and <laughs> I, um, yeah, so I'm not really out there. Sorry. <laughs> no, you're good. You're good. All right. Well, it was a pleasure talking with you today, Lisa, and I'm super excited to see where your journey goes next. And thank you as always for your time. It's a pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Brown Body Health and Fitness Podcast. If you liked this episode, please make sure to share it with a friend, subscribe so you don't miss any of our upcoming episodes, and leave a review. This way we can spread knowledge and motivation and help reach more people. Thank you again for listening and I'll see you next time.